window-breaking, earthquaking, soul-shaking. That's how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes The Who. Those adjectives describe much more than the volume of The Who's music, though sure, their concerts in the 1970s were loud enough to earn the McGuinness World Record. But what those words also capture is the power and the impact of The Who's music. They changed rock and roll with the use of synthesizers, feedback, power chords, and a wild onstage presence that for a time included the smashing of the instruments. Out here in the fields I fought for my meals I get my back into my living They were rock gods who created the first rock opera, and their lead singer was, and is, of course, Roger Daltrey. Whose music is not the most popular? It's a very acquired taste. You either love it or you hate it. It's not. If you want to stop a party, put a Who song on because it's terrible to dance to. <laughs> but it's it does something else. It's serving another purpose, and it's not just cherries on cakes. It's a much, much deeper level. Don't cry. Don't raise your eyes. It's Roger Daltrey is our featured guest today on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for. But boy, you better not miss him. When Roger Daltrey sat down recently to talk to journalist Gail Eichenthal for the Academy of Achievement, he seemed rather tame and downright delightful. He didn't pick up the mic and toss it. He didn't bare his chest and he didn't scream that rock and roll scream he made famous. But then again, Roger Daltrey is now 78. He wears hearing aids and has grandchildren, but he is still very much a rocker, touring across America at the moment with The Who, singing and screaming his heart out with his bandmate Pete Townsend. They went to high school together with the two other original members of the band, Keith Moon and John Entwistle, both now deceased. But Daltrey was born one town over in Shepherd's Bush. Our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, started the conversation off by asking Daltrey to talk about his earliest memories growing up in the immediate aftermath of World War II. It was actually wonderful because uh, even though we were, we were poorly fed, I mean, we had 
we were on rations until 19, I think it was 1956, seven of sugar. So you can imagine our, um, our diet was pretty rough and what little food we had during the war on a ration. When it came to 1945 and the war ended, we had to share our ration with the German people that were even worse off than us. So, so instead of thinking, oh, the war's over, we're gonna get more food, we got less. But um, when I look back on it, I mean, we were, everybody was happy. I think they were all, all my parents and, and my parents' generation that went through that experience, spent their lives after the war in shell shock. I don't think they ever quite got over it. Um, certainly, for, for right till the end of her life, my mother, every time a, a thunderstorm occurred outside, would throw a, throw a complete screaming fit and try and get everybody under a table. She was back in the blitz, you know. So, but in Shepherd's Bush, it was a it was a totally mixed community of of, of, of poor Irish immigrants. First West Indians came. Uh, the bombed-out houses became the most wonderful adventure playground you could ever have for a kid because the cellars would fill with water. Within five years, there was all undergrowth growing and these magical... You know, everything seems much bigger when you're a child. And, and So those, those bombed-out houses to us seems like these mysterious forests of, with pools with frogs and newts and things. So it was magical, it was absolutely magical. And people say, no, you were very poor. Yeah, we didn't have a lot, but we weren't poor. We were incredibly wealthy. We had a community that was completely solid and supportive of each other. And that's what, where wealth comes from. Roger Daltrey started out as a very good student. He got one of the highest grades in his school on the exam that determined where he would attend what the British call grammar school, and what Americans call middle and high school. That's when his school performance took a nosedive. He was 12, and at the same time he switched schools, his family moved. Literally only a mile and a half up the road to a place called Chiswick. Uh, But it was another world. Um, In Shepherd's Bush, everyone was a cockney. Everyone spoke, (laughs) we understood each other. but in, in, in Chiswick, the accents were very different. Everyone was very well spoken. And this school that I went to drew in people from way outside of London, Harrow, um, Ricelip, sort of 10 miles away. And some really posh, as we called it, posh people uh, were sending their children to this school. And I thought, I didn't fit in at all, at all. And I don't know, Within the, after the first year, I started to feel very insecure. Um, grammar schools in those days were, there was corporal punishment, um, uh, and there was this thing called um, fagging. If you watch Tom Brown's School Days, the film, you'll know what I mean. Um, the sixth form, which is the, the, the older boys, the, the ones that are due to leave that year, they pick on the little kids coming in and anyway because I was little not a, not a big guy at all I used to get bullied quite badly 
And that went on for the first year. And then when it got to the second year, um, it started again at the beginning of the year. And I thought, I'm not having any more of this. <laughs> and I picked up a chair and hit the bloke back. Some guy, some guy was picking on me and I hit him with the chair. <laughs> and he fell on the floor. And from then on, they kind of left me alone. But by then, I was my fight or flight syndrome was so attuned to, to being attacked that if I ever felt threatened, I would just lash out. Um, I mean, Pete's on record as saying I was a bully. I actually wasn't a bully. I never would start a fight deliberately. But if I ever felt that I was going to be attacked, I would always make sure when you're small, like me, and you get that feeling, you know that the only chance you've got is to get the first punch in. So <laughs> I became a bit of a wild card, you know, but um, I was never a bully. Um, it's not my nature. You were badly hurt in some of those fights when you were bullied, weren't you? Well, badly hurt. You get up and bounce, don't you? <laughs> you know, I broke my nose, I broke my jaw, I whatever I broke. Um, you ultimately were expelled from that school. How did yeah, that well, happen? Yeah, well, this went on, and, and, and after the first year, I suddenly realized that they weren't actually teaching me anything. We had an English teacher that every lesson we had, would, would, we, he would tell us to read a book, and he would give the class a book to read, and he would sit there doing, doing the, his, his bets in the, in the racing post. <laughs> He never taught us anything apart from read these books. And of course, after a while, you think, well, I'm going to do everything else but read this book. You know, this is in the time when music was just starting to come across, playing rock and roll from America, Little Richard and those kind of people. And all of a sudden, you get these other interests. And the last thing you want to read is a book on Shakespeare, of, of Shakespeare. You know, who wants to read Henry V when there's Elvis coming through? So we used to do everything else but learn any English. You know, if you give me a good teacher, I'll really learn quickly. Really good learner. But if you give me a bad one, you'll shut me down and you've lost me forever. And, and after five years, or was it four years, at the age of 14, 14, when it came to my 15th birthday, I got expelled. Um, those series of things, I, I, I took a, an air pistol to school. Uh, and, and, you know, because we, were, we used to have these silly little air pistols, B, BB guns in America. And boy, did I get a thrashing for that. <laughs> so was that uh, the reason you were expelled specifically? That was one of them. Um, I, I can't remember the final thing. I got caught smoking in the bicycle sheds. Uh, and that was, of course, a no-no. But I got caught smoking, I think it was the third time. Uh, and Mr. Kibblewhite, my headmaster, called me into his office and, he, uh, and basically he, he gave me six strokes of a cane on my bare buttocks, which, are, which hurts, I tell you. It's so painful. Um, 
he gave me six strokes of the cane and, uh, and said, you're, you're not coming back to the school, you're expelled. And this was literally my, the day before my 15th birthday. And um, as I was walking out of his office, he, he, he said to me, you'll never make anything of your life, Daughtry. <laughs> my back went up. I, oh, well, I'll show you, Mr. Kevoid. And you immortalized him by naming your autobiography. Well, I did it. I, I wanted to, to, to. I wanted to do a biography, and I thought I need to thank Mr. Kibblewhite because those words—if he hadn't have said those words—what would have happened to my life? I don't know. I might have gone out that door and joined my mates in, you know, all kinds of skullduggery. Um, there was a lot of, a lot of my mates, you know borderline wrong side of the law. So it would have been very easy to go down that path. But Mr. Kibblewhite just got my back up and I thought, well, I'm going to show you. I had a group at the time, and it was The Who. It was the beginnings of The Who. I was with John Entwistle, and Pete Townsend went to the same school, and John Entwistle, but they were in a younger year than me. And um, we, we started to get jobs playing weddings and bar mitzvahs, that kind of stuff. And we made a few, you know, a few bucks on the side, a few, so I thought, well, this, this could be a career. I love to sing. I'd, I'd sung in the church choir when I was six. Um, but I wanted to be a guitarist. I wanted to be... Uh, Buddy Holly was one of the people I wanted to be. And also Lonnie Donegan, which was a skiffle artist. What is skiffle? Well, skiffle is basically American folk songs and chain gang songs done very simply. Um, just acoustic guitars. There's no drums, you have a T-chest bass, which is a basically a wooden T-chest with a piece of string in the middle coming out of the centre, and a broomstick, and you tie the string to the top, and you pluck it like a bass, and the tighter you pull it, the higher it goes, and it sounds like a bass, it's amazing. Uh, for drums, we used to have a washboard and thimbles on our fingers, make a noise like that, and we'd sing lead belly songs, old chain gang songs, um, you know, and that's what skiffle is. But the wonderful thing about it was it was music that we could make ourselves. You didn't need amplifiers. You just needed any old guitar, any old tea chest, any broomstick, <laughs> and mum's washboard. <laughs> so then you went out and you, every street had a skiffle group. Um, it was brilliant, brilliant times. And that's where all, I think that's where the rock and roll explosion that came out of England in the 60s came from. It all came from Skiffle. You, you talk to Robert Plant, for instance, he'll tell you he was inspired by the same man as me, Lonnie Donegan. early Beatles sounded like Skiffle, didn't they? Yeah, they were all influenced by the same music. Yes, that's where it came from, American folk stuff. 
So you had to go to work after being expelled. What were you doing? Well, the first job I had was on a building site. I wanted to be an electrician. Uh, I thought, well, that'd be interesting because I can, I can learn how to do stuff and I might, might be able to make, make myself an amplifier. Anyway, they sent me to, they sent me to this, this job on a building site. Supposed to be electrician's mate. I never saw a, a, an electrical wire anywhere. I was bending pipe for six weeks <laughs> on a freezing cold building site, sort of six stories up in the air. And um, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I, I, I'm not doing this. So I, I walked out of that job. I just walked, I thought, this is not for me. Um, and I went back to the, the, the employment office and he sent me, sent me to a little tiny. What you would, I don't know, what you would describe it as in, in American terms. Um, like the, you wouldn't, I wouldn't keep my animals in, <laughs> in the place that we class as a factory. Uh, uh, we, it was a sheet metal work factory and they were looking for a T-boy. Now a T-boy was someone who used to go around to the, the working guys at the benches making early computer cabinets, very skilled guys. And he would say to them, what would you like for your tea break? Which is when you take a break, 10 o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the afternoon. And you, you take their order, you write it down and you go out to the shops and you get their stuff and they would pay you. And sometimes if you were good, they'd give you a tip. You did that half an hour in the morning and then they were training you to be a sheet metal worker the rest of the day. Uh, and I enjoyed that because it was it was creative. You start with a flat piece of steel, you bend it and hammer it and you punch holes in it and it would end up as something. So I thought, oh, this is all right, I can, I can deal with this. And the guys were all great. They were all really good time, good fun guys. A lot of them just come back from Korea when that war ended. Uh, and they were tough guys, tough, tough guys. And what they used to do, we, we, we weren't allowed a radio. So we used to sing all day. When we got the hammers going and the machines going, <laughs> there's all these wonderful rhythms. And we'd sing, and we'd sing anything that was current. Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, you, anything in the charts we would sing. So you were singing harmony? Yeah, we'd all sing in harmony. You know, well, I think singing was an important reason that, that, as they are in Ukraine, if you notice, it's what got us through the war. The more Hitler couldn't understand that. The more he bombed us, the louder we sang. But I understand it as a singer. It's, a, it's one of the few ultimate, ultimate releases when you, when you stand with a load of people when they're really singing. It doesn't matter what they're singing as long as their hearts are in it. They're not just mumbling. Like a football crowd, for instance. When you hear a football crowd singing the club songs, you know, it's the most wondrous noise. And not all of them can sing, of course, but it, but they can sing. It, 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 there's something about when you get so many, so many notes together, it makes a, a sound that is, it's extraordinary the power of it. You know, um, it lifts the spirit. Yeah, and uh, so that so I, my, I I look back on my factory days now, um, as some of the happiest times of my life. I really do. And that was a time when John Empress who introduced me to Pete Townsend. Uh, this is 1962, end of 62. So 
we, we, we've, been, we've been doing this for 60 years now, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, and uh, as soon as Pete came into the band, I recognised that he was something special. He had something very, very special. He, he played like no other guitarist I'd ever heard. I think that was because he was, the, the band he had with John was played traditional jazz. It was like New Orleans jazz. And Pete, Pete played the banjo. So you can hear that in the way he plays rhythm guitar now. He's still, he's, his favourite thing to do is be a rhythm guitarist. Not one of those do you do Eric Clapton type lead guitarists. <laughs> Even though he can do it, he's a fantastic rhythm guitarist. But I very early on recognised that he had a talent. He understood music in a way that I never would. Although I had an instinct that, that I could, I could, what would be the word? Um, I could communicate feelings. I could communicate the written word into a, you know, a note in, in a musical song and make it touch people. Basically, all I ever wanted to be was a great singer. And I have to say it, I think I've, I finally, I think I'm singing better today than I ever have in my life, which is extraordinary. He works drunk, I was blind, the wakes are right to be kind. I was sunk, always late, we were quick to rotate. Let's be Willfully give up the guitar? Was your voice discovered in those early days? No, I, I, I kind of gave, gave up the guitar because of the sheet metal work and guitar playing didn't agree. Um, I used to have so many cuts on my hands at the end of a day sometimes. You can't, my hands just went hard. So I gave up the guitar. Um, and, and we tried singers in the band and they were all. They were okay, they could sing, but they had, they were just mimics of, of, of they, they didn't have that extra thing. Um, and I seemed to just be, it was a chemistry thing between us. We, it worked and we didn't challenge it. What? I didn't challenge it. They didn't challenge the fact that, that, that uh, I was going to be the singer. They, they just said, you be the singer, Pete be the lead guitarist. And I was, I was quite happy to be the singer. Uh, and like I say, they didn't throw me out. Not, not then anyway, they threw me out later. <laughs> Kale wanted to continue with the story of the band's formation and earliest days, and she did. But there was no way she was going to miss the opportunity to hear Roger Daltrey tell that story first. His expulsion from the band came down to a fight between him and Keith Moon. This was before The Who had become really big, which is to say before they played Woodstock or recorded the album Tommy. 
they were on their first tour of Europe. Where they were let off the rain of living with mum, <laughs> staying, staying out all night. And of course, um, drugs entered the band for the first time. See, the drugs have been kind of, we've taken pot and things, and we've taken the odd, odd amphetamine to stay up when we had two shows of a night and things like that. I couldn't do them because the first thing that happens to a singer when you take amphetamine, it dries your throat up so you can't sing. So I thought, well, I'm either going to be a good singer and sing, or I'm going to take amphetamines and be, be a roadie and drive the truck. <laughs> I think that was 1965. I had a, they went out on our first tour of Europe and they managed to get hold of a big bag of amphetamine. And they were out up for three days solid party and this that and the other. And you've got to understand the position of a singer on the stage. You never see the band. You only hear them, you only feel them. That makes you, you kind of have this kind of radar that you know when something is not quite right. And by the end of the first week of this tour, the, the playing was getting so bad. And this was my band, that, and it was my band up until then. I thought, you know, I've got to do something about this because this is a great band that's, that's becoming a load of rubbish. I couldn't sing to it. They were playing things so fast all over the place. So I, I came off stage and I, I, I got the bag of amphetamine and flushed it down the toilet. Um, and Keith Moon was not very happy about that. Uh, he, he attacked me with a tambourine, which sounds innocuous. Um, until you kind of explains that it wasn't the skin of the tambourine, it was, it was the bells. He Which came, are sharp. He, he came slashing at me with it. Yeah, it was, wasn't quite what you think. <laughs> and that resulted in your leaving the band? No, they kicked me out. They kicked me out and I thought, all right, I'll start another band. That was, my, that was how I was at that age. I wasn't really bothered, to be honest. But um, you had put so so much into that, Ben. Well, yeah, but it, the way it was going, it was going nowhere anyway. So what was the point? And then I thought, well, let them do without me. They think they can do without me. After sort of a, a month, they they called me back in, and they'd done a few gigs. That, that, that I think they got booed off, um, and uh, they realised they kind of needed me. And I they I came to an agreement with them that I don't care about. It taking drugs, it was part of, part of life. But what I do care about is when you get on stage and people are paid to see you, you've got to deliver what they come to see. And if you're on drugs and playing like a load of rubbish, it's not what they pay to come and see. So I thought, well, I'll come back on the condition that you only take drugs after the show, never before a show. And, and they said, you, you can come back if you stop, never, stop fighting. And I said, all right, all right, that's easy. I don't, you know, I didn't want to fight anybody. And I became known as Peaceful Purse. And they, but they used, Moon used to goad me like mad to, to, uh, uh, for, for, for two years there, from 60, 65 through 66 into 67. Um, he would do things to, do anything to try and get me to flare up and I just resisted it. Because they were, they, as long as they play well, I didn't care. Sometimes I feel I gotta get away. Bells chime, I know 
going back just a little bit, um, I was amazed that you made your own first guitar. Well, that was a case of having to. Uh, we didn't have the money to buy instruments. We had no money to do that. Um, so I thought, well, I'll make one. And I went out and bought some plywood. And, and I, you know, it was easy to get supplies. And I made my first guitar. It didn't last very long. It lasted about six weeks. And it was, would have made a better cheese cutter than it was a guitar. But I, I learned the three basic chords. I learned E, A, and B7. And with those three chords, you could play most of the skiffle songs. And then six weeks after that guitar was completed, it, it went <laughs> That was the end of that. But my uncle was a, was a carpenter, a, a, a professional carpenter. He kind of felt sorry for me, and he said, I'll help you make your next guitar. And that guitar lasted quite a long time. I mean, it lasted until I swapped it for bits, bits to make an electric guitar. What did you guys call yourselves when you first came together? Oh, you don't, what, what, individually? <laughs> you don't I don't mean, uh, <laughs> what did you call yourselves behind each other's back? What was the name <laughs> of the group? <laughs> Well, we had all, initially we, we had, I don't know what we were called when we were the Skiffle Group, can't remember that. But the, the band name was always the, the Detours uh, from 1962. We were called the Detours. And we built quite a following in West London. Uh, and that went on as the Detours till 1964 when we all thought, well, this is getting a or was it 63, end of 63, I can't, it gets a bit blurry now in my brain. Um, uh, and then we, we, we sat down one day and said, this name's a bit, bit old hat, but let's do something different. And the Beatles had hit then, and so we thought, well, you know, our name's very the this and that. So we thought, the's all right, it's the Beatles that's the problem. Um, and we just threw names around and someone came up with the who. And we thought, well, oh, there's something about it. And that's what we became. We changed it later to, to, to the high numbers, and we actually made a record as the high numbers. A six, six month stint. We went from the Who to the high numbers for six months and then went back to the Who. <laughs> it was a weird, 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 weird kind of you know, way of doing it, but that's how it ended up. And we just got lucky. We, you know, things ha you, you can have a certain amount of talent, but you also need quite a lot of luck and you also need an awful lot of stamina. Tenacity. I gather that Elvis was an influence as well. Well Elvis yeah. was the influence on everybody because he looked so cool and you've got to remember you know prior to Elvis the world was very grey and straight um, and Elvis was almost like some, someone landed from Mars. <laughs> Uh, and of course, we all wanted to look like Elvis. We all immediately went, went and got a bar of soap, put it on our hair. To, <laughs> the hair went, whereas it, before it was just a normal short back and sides, just who cares? <laughs> Even though it was done with soap and not, not whatever Elvis used. Uh, and of course, we all thought we could look like Elvis, and none of us did. Uh, but we tried. Did you try swiveling um, your and, hips? and I loved his early songs, but I, then he went all kind of mushy and slushy. And we all went off of him. 
and stuck with uh, we stuck with the Everly Brothers and, and those kind of people. I understand that Pete's mother had a role in getting you going. Pete's mum, Betty, because Pete's dad was a professional musician, but Betty Townsend, she was so supportive of us, of us in the early days. She was she was like our manager, our agent. She knew loads of people in the music business. And she managed to get us get us jobs where we we started to earn quite good money. I was earning more in the group than I was in the factory, um, and Betty was instrumental to that. She we couldn't have done it without her. There's no doubt about that. She was a remarkable woman. Betty Townsend helped them land jobs as the opening act or support band for some of the most popular groups coming out of Liverpool, including the Undertakers and Jerry and the Pacemakers. And then in 1964, that culminated with us playing with the Beatles at the Blackpool Opera House. Um, and that was an eye-opener, because we couldn't, we, we, they were, they were, we could hear them backstage, they were playing great, but out front you couldn't hear a word or a noise they made, just screaming girls, it was ridiculous. What were they like to work with? Uh, what were your impressions of them individually? Uh, well, then we're just absolutely awestruck. <laughs> in the theatre elevator with them. And like, it's John Lennon. <laughs> I still get starstruck, believe it or not, I still, I still do. At the awards thing for, for this, when we went, there was Judy Collins in the elevator when I, when I arrived and I, I couldn't speak to her because I'm a huge Judy Collins fan. I thought, it's Judy Collins. <laughs> so what about the Stones? You supported them too? We supported the Stones several times, yeah. I became very friends, very, very good friends with Brian. Got on really well with Brian. Um, and the Stones were, were inspirational. They were, I, I, I've always thought Mick Jagger was, is, is the best front man rock and roll's ever had, out, out, outside of America. You know, Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis were pretty good too. <laughs> um, but that was a, a, a really good education for us. But we were aware that, that there was only room for one blues band. And we were playing the blues then, everybody was playing the blues. Um, and so we had to do something different. Uh, but the chemistry of the band was there, that w w was able, we were able to kind of take the blues, squash it and mix it and turn the volume up and get feedback and all that stuff. And that all grew out of the blues. You started doing covers, got into blues, and then I gather gradually started adding Pete's original yeah. songs, yeah. and which was seems like a really good way to kind of integrate the audience into the new sound. When you first heard Pete's songs, did you know this was something really special and original or was it hard getting used to it? No, Pete's always had an original way of writing. There's no doubt about that. The first, I mean, can't explain. It's very, it sounds very, very simple and it is kind of kinks derivative. You can hear the, the influence of uh, all day and all of the night. 
but it's the, the lyrics are saying much more. I've got a feeling inside I can't explain. It's a it's a real adolescent scream, and it really is. I think it's love. <laughs> I think I'm not sure, but. <laughs> So there was this thing called the British Invasion. What what were you invading? And did you feel well, how that, that was the invasion. We weren't invading anything. I mean, it was just a press invention, you know. <laughs> we just wanted to, we wanted to go, come from the land of suet to the land of steak. <laughs> uh, it was everybody's dream in England, uh, especially from the working class bands, to, to make it big in America. That was, our, that was our dream. We were, we were starting to be fed on American TV and it, it looked so wonderful to us, I can't tell you. You were also, not just you, but the Stones and other groups were kind of popularizing blues because you came from blues where in America it wasn't being paid much attention to. No, no. I think we understood the, blue, the blues because of our class system. So I think that's why we connected with it. Um, even though we, you know, we're not, we're not black, quite obviously, uh, but we understood where their music came from, from inside them. We understood their frustration and their, their, with their position in society and all those things. Uh, and I think that's why the English working class got it. Uh, and when we heard it, we, we, we didn't understand everything they were singing about but it spoke to us internally. And I'm so grateful to those guys. And when they used to come to England in, in late 63, 64, um, those guys used to come to England, they were treated like royalty. They couldn't believe it. They could not believe that they, they were worshipped. I've always been proud of that. To have B.B. Yeah. King thank bands like the Stones and the Who, because they, their music was only being played in these tiny little clubs, you know, and it deserved to be out there to the world. And look, look what it's done. It made a huge difference in sort of elevating the stature of blues in this country. Yeah. Did you have any idea that, you know, this British invasion would literally kind of take, conquer America? Um, well, obviously the Beatles have already done it, so something was going on. But we didn't realise um, until we did Tommy, and then Woodstock happened, uh, and then, what, then Elton John, all those other people. I mean, we had no idea. We were, we knew that they were good artists, but we didn't know whether their music would, would cross. And basically, we got lucky with our management. We we had this manager called Kit Lambert. Kit was Eton educated, Oxford spoke fluent German, French, ancient Greek, had studied everything. He was, he was genius, absolute genius. Wonderful, 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 kind, gentle man. He was uncomfortably gay because it, it was illegal to be gay in those days. Um, but he was, 
determined to, to, to make pop music have a more important status than it had at the time. The three-minute single is really valuable, but it's not enough. For, it wasn't enough for him. You know, pop music, we, we need to do an opera. And we thought, <laughs> is he mad? <laughs> but he was correct. You know, we, we, in 1968, towards the end of 68, we made Tommy, and we've never looked back since. <laughs> Tommy is such a specific, um, unusual uh, protagonist, mm -hmm. and yet uh, the universality of Tommy is amazing. You're still performing music from Tommy. It's toured, you know, so recently, 50 years later. Yep. So what prompted this rock opera based on such an unusual subject? Well, I think it spoke, it spoke to that, that generation of who were being drafted. They all felt as though they weren't being seen or heard. No one's listening to what they were saying. So they felt they, felt they were all Tommy, I think. That's, what I, that's my theory of it. Um, and it hit a nerve. And musically, though, it's brilliant when you listen to the musicality of it, especially as you hear it today with an orchestrations on top, because it was, they're quite simple chords, even though the structures are very, very different than the average pop song. But it was just something about it that, that, that connected to that generation. And this generation. Mm -hmm. You've said that Tommy was kind of a turning point for you as a singer. How so? When it came to performing Tommy live, to sing the whole piece, I thought, I can, I found my voice at last. Because prior to that, Pete had written songs, really quirky songs, one called Happy Jack. God, it was like a Burr Live song. <laughs> um, uh, what else was it? There was uh, I'm a Boy. So, I mean, these quirky songs, and I'm trying to find a voice for them. And then he wrote one called Pictures of Lily, which is about Lily Langtree, uh, the pin-up from the First World War. But when you listen to those songs back now, they're kind of interesting, because you can hear uh, there's a kind of haunted quality in my voice, because I'm trying to search for how do I connect this to an audience. I used to wake up in the morning I used to feel so bad I got so sick of having sleepless nights I went and told my dad He said, son, now here's some little something And stuck them on my wall And now my nights seem quite so lonely In fact, I, I don't know bad at all I don't know bad at all Once we got into Tommy and we got it on stage, all of a sudden I was free. I had, this, I had, a, I had a root nap out of 
you know, this kind of darkness of not quite knowing how to push myself across. And I very quickly realised that, that to play this central character and make it come across, because prior to that I'd just been a, another singer in a band. And, and Tommy, I just thought this, this needs to have a very strong image and central character. So I'd, I managed to get very lucky in finding who was to, a woman who was to become my wife who gave me the confidence to grow my hair, because I, for years I'd had this curly, the curse of curly hair, as I used to think it was, and was trying to keep it straight. Uh, and she just, it all happened at the same time. And, and so my hair was getting long and all these ringlets, and I thought, I'm just gonna develop a character that could be seen as Tommy. And that's what I did. You you guys had a very very strong sense of style that was very influential, and uh, uh, and people people mimicked you. We had no sense of style whatsoever. It was all, it was kind of it was like make it up. I'm, for the first in 1967 when I first met Heather, my my, my wife, uh, I used to I used to steal her clothes. <laughs> it was anything that fitted um, and then of course I got into to wearing buckskin which I loved because it was like an, I, I get so hot when I sing like the energy of, that, that comes out of me I get incredibly hot so I, I'm, I'm not good at, I could never wear a suit uh, so I got into buckskin and, and I thought I, I, I always did love the Wild Bill Hickok look with all the fringes. And I, and I thought, well, Tommy could have one of those, but he could have it a bit more flamboyant. So, so I had that made, that, for, that, that Woodstock suit. But after that, that became the Woodstock suit, but there was only one. And of course, after about a year of shows, the Woodstock suit stood up on its own <laughs> and walked out. <laughs> uh, but, so I, I thought, well, I've got loads of pairs of strop trousers. What do I do for the top? So I, I went, went down the garage and bought some chamois leathers that you know you clean cars with, and just kind of laced them together and made all these tops, which were literally we, my wife and I used to just sit there, just pinning bits of cheap stuff together, you know, and, and style. <laughs> Pete Townsend, in an interview, said that um, he didn't think much of his own guitar playing, and he realized that there had to be an important aspect of your performances that was visual, and he had the uh, windmill guitar playing, and uh, you had the twirling of the mic. How did that come about, the mic? It came out of boredom. I wasn't very, I wasn't very comfortable standing up there doing nothing. And I had all this madness going on around me. People used to be leaping up and down like a jumping bean um, with his arms swinging and all this, and Moon at the back of me, the, the master, the master at upstaging. Um, and I thought, well, I can't just stand here. I've got to do something. And I just, I don't know, it just, it seemed to kind of work. When it works, it's, it, in those days, I could really swing it. I mean, I could really, really I could throw it out. 
20 feet and get it back and catch it. And it wasn't just throwing it and catching it, it was, doing, it was all in time with the music. So everything comes on a beat, you know. Um, and of course, if you get it right, and with Pete doing his jump into the music, it becomes like a, a ballet. It's much, it becomes much bigger than the sum of its parts. And with Moon in the back doing all his twiddling and <laughs> gurning, <laughs> it was wonderful, you know. And that's all the good things. You, ne you can't plan them. You saw so many brilliant musicians die young, um, and I know that Keith Moon's death hit you all so hard. Losing Keith for me was, I found it, I still find it really, really painful. Um, you know, at the time, we, we tried so hard to keep him level, but he, he had so much tragedy in his life. Um, I don't, I, I can't really, I can't really, I still find it hard to talk about. Um, he was, a, he was truly extraordinary. I wish we could, I wish we could have saved him. I've always felt, but, but then, I, the more I think about it, I don't ever think he would have made old bones. I've written a film script uh, about his life because I've never met anyone in my life similar to Keith Moon. He was the funniest man I've ever met in my life. He was the most amazing mimic. He was a wonderful orator. He had a, lang he had a vocabulary way beyond his education. I mean, he would astound you with the words he would come out with. Um, and he could, he would improvise just like that. But he couldn't control his talent. He had, it was a talent that was out of control. He'd do wonderful things. When you ask him, if you were trying to make a film and you'd ask him to do it, could you just do that again? And he'd go, no, <laughs> couldn't do it again. And that, that was him. And he was the most generous. He was the most mean. He was the most loving, the most hateful. He was, everything was extreme. I mean, we're all a bunch of people, as you know. But he was, everything was a, a polar, polar opposites. And, like I said, I just want to, I want to do a film of Keith Moon because I've never met anyone like him. Yes, he was incredibly flawed. He had incredible tragedy in his life. But everybody who knew him, who met him, loved him. And quite uh, one of the greatest rock drummers ever. He was, he was the best Keith Moon drummer ever. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, yes, he was. And every, people say he was sloppy. He wasn't. He just had a different way of playing. He, he, he would play, he didn't just play straight drums, but I think that's what made the Who sound. When Keith joined the band, and it was, and it was my band that he joined, he came up and he played and he was behind me and I wasn't looking at him, so I don't know how he looked, I didn't care how he looked. All I cared about is, can this guy drum? We'd heard about him as a drummer, heard good things about him. All I know is that the, the vibe and the, the energy of the band immediately went up 100% when he was back there playing the drums with John and Pete on, on guitar and bass and I was singing. 
it, that, it, that happened immediately. It was like starting up a jet engine. One of the ultimate songs to hear, if you want to hear how Moon could drum, is I Can See For Miles. It came out in 1968. If you listen to the drums on the end of that, it just, it's just... I want to talk about some other songs um, before we let you go, if that's okay. My generation has that legendary stutter. Yeah. How did that come about? It came about from, by accident. <laughs> because uh, when, uh, from what I can remember, but, uh, and again, we all have our own memories, but I seem to remember it originally being done much more like um, fade away rhythm. We're talking about much generation. So it was a very different rhythm. And of course, Moon, Put it on the on beat, <laughs> which gave it its energy. Uh, and when I first got to sing it, I missed the first intro and went, but <laughs> and and Kit Lambert again just listened to it was in the box listening. Keep that in. <laughs> so it was an a, just an accident. Keep it in. Stutter it all the all. No, Did you think that was weird? No. Or trusted him. That's what it was about. You recognize people's talent and you trust it. People try to put us to death. Just because we get around. We have to talk about the scream. The oh, great, screaming, yeah. yeah. The greatest scream in, in rock history. Um, that's a pretty powerful song that holds up like nobody's business, won't get fooled again. Yeah, um, we recorded that at Mick Jagger's house in, in Berkshire, Stargroves, and it was in his hallway. And the other guys were having dinner at the time while I was putting the vocal on. Pete had indicated a, a yell, yeah! And I thought, that's not who it needs to, this is, this song is about angst and, you know, it's, it's got so much energy in it, it needs more than that. So I just gave it my all and they, they did that scream. Yeah! And they heard it, I thought, oh, the singer's just died. <laughs> Lynn Johns, who produced that, said, do it again. So I did another one. And I think I did about three of them, and we, they kept the best one, I think. But it ripped, it used to rip my voice out every night. Still does. But I, I'm tend to find getting up there at the moment easier than, than for years. That's amazing. Could you have imagined, you know, when you started on the journey with Tommy, that you'd be singing it 50 years later. Uh, what drives you to keep going? 
what drives me is that we were given, we had a talent, we were given the opportunity to get where we are, we are where we are, and music needs to go on. We, we, whether we, we've got so many songs that were hits, we, we have problems. We, we could be up there playing a five-hour show. You know, Pete's written a hundred really great songs. You, you can do 22 in the night, you know. So work it out. It's um, but to be out there playing your music in, live in front of an audience and connecting, you know, music is something that we mustn't lose in our lives. We're in we're in great danger uh, of losing serious music at the moment. The streaming situation with musicians and the record industry is now so out of kilter. We're in danger that where musicians can't earn a living, then music will die. I mean, the backing vocalist in our band at the moment, Billy Nichols, he wrote a, a song that, that Taylor Swift had a hit with. She had 11 million streams. He got, I think he got some fifteen dollars. It's immoral, and that that so for bands like us, we're going to keep out there. We're going to keep going, and we're going to keep employing crews. Our crew, for instance, that have been with us for forty years, they're they're the most skilled people. They are. We can't let this industry die. We've got to fight to keep it up there. <laughs> Roger Daltrey at 78 is not giving up that fight. The Who has been touring the United States this fall with Pete Townsend on guitar, of course. The Who's current drummer, it's worth noting, is Keith Moon's godson, Zach Starkey, who also happens to be the son of Ringo Starr. The Who's current tour, called The Who Hits Back, wraps up this week with a concert on Tuesday, November 1st at the Hollywood Bowl in L.A. and shows in Las Vegas on Friday and Saturday nights. Roger Daltrey has also been dedicated for decades to helping adolescents and young adults with cancer. Ten years ago, he and Pete Townsend started an organization called Teen Cancer America to promote a new approach to caring for adolescents whose physical and emotional needs are very different from the needs of pediatric or adult patients. And I think we can all agree he knows a thing or two about teens. Before signing off, I'd like to encourage you to listen to the other episodes in our collection about British rock icons, including Peter Gabriel, Bernie Taupin, and Jimmy Page. We've also got episodes on American bluesmen Buddy Guy and B.B. King. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. Thank you so much for joining us. What It Takes is made possible with generous funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Rock on. Oh,